Hi, this is Robert Furrow and welcome to Truth Quest Q&A. This is our podcast and we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. If you have a question, write the word question down, read it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it and we will take a look at them as they come in. We have our first question which is from our study this last week. Uh, Our study was for Easter Sunday morning for Resurrection Celebration was the Emmaus Road. These two disciples are making their way from Jerusalem. They had heard the women talk about the empty tomb and the angel who said he is risen. Uh, They uh, did not believe them. They left to go on the road and Jesus appears to them. He shares with them all the Old Testament says about Jesus, all the fulfillment of the Old Testament. When Jesus is finally revealed, they say, didn't our hearts burn within us when we heard him tell us those things about the Old Testament? So the question is, why did their hearts burn within them on the Emmaus Road? Now this might not seem like an important question. You could say, They were excited. Their hearts burned with anticipation when they learned that there was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But I know the reason that this question was asked. It was asked because of the Mormon Church, which says that if you are questioning whether or not it's true, then seek and wait on God and see if there's a burning in your heart. And they use this passage. And right now, the Mormon Church is on a campaign to rebrand itself as Christians. From the very beginning, they weren't doing this at all. They were saying that Christians were anathema and that God had given Joseph Smith the revelation to be able to override the horrible things that Christians have done. But Christians have marked them as a cult and marked what they believe as a cult, believing that Father God has a wife in heaven, Mother God, uh, and that she ha- they have sex together because he's got a little body like ours and makes spirit babies. Jesus was one of them, Lucifer was one of them. And then Jesus came to this earth and climbed and became God. And the Holy Spirit, the same thing, became God. And then, so then they say, well, we believe the Holy Spirit's God. We believe you gotta trust in Jesus in order to be saved. But they mean something else with what they're appropriating. So when they say, if your heart burns within you, then you know it's true. It's not the same thing I mean when I say, I was studying Isaiah 53, and when I thought of the crucifixion of Jesus, my heart burned within me. That's something entirely different. It has nothing to do with a test of whether or not it is real or true. I took some time to look up today what the Mormon church does if someone says that their heart isn't burning within them and they've got a whole system of things that they go through to try to make it happen so that person can go, I saw it whether it was or not it was true and my heart burned uh, within me. Uh, This is a huge thing today. Uh, Mormons are saying, we're just like you. We believe in the same Jesus that you believe in. And um, I think that it's a dangerous precedent. We ought to mark them as a cult. They believe in a works-based religion. You have to work to be saved. It has nothing to do with grace. The Jesus they serve is a different Jesus. And the heart burning in the disciples on the Emmaus Road was radically different. They're just trying to appropriate what is the church's and try to make it their own. And they've done a fairly good job of it by the way. The main argument you hear when you talk against Mormon doctrine is they're such good people. That's not the argument. The argument is, is it truth? Is, is, can you become a God? Can you progress to the point that you have your own planet with your own wives that have physical bodies and have spirit babies and populate your own planet? 
If that's a lie, then that's a lie. It doesn't matter how nice the people are. The people could be the nicest ones on the planet. And um, go back in history, do a little bit of studying on the Meadow Mountain Massacre, a few other things that were done with Brigham Young, and they might not be as nice. They're, I'm not saying a family today isn't as nice. I'm just saying Mormons in history might not be as nice as what you think that they truly are. All right? And this is not Mormon hating by any means. It's just a desire to know the truth and to know what that truth is. I hope you guys had a great resurrection celebration. If you have questions about that Emmaus Road passage, I would love to take a shot at answering it. If you have questions about the resurrection, I'd love to answer that as well. If you have questions about Christianity, if you're a new believer, if um, apologetics, prophecy, um, a passage that is causing you some difficulty, or you're wondering what a passage really means, uh, then I'd love to take a shot of that, uh, looking at that passage and seeing if we can't figure it out. All right, so good to see you guys. Glad to have you here. Uh, we're going to look to take our first question, and it's Andre. Andre gets uh, the first question reward often, and uh, Andre, your, your questions are always challenging. Um, clearly, the Lord is a pro-life God. He wouldn't have sanctified Jeremiah before birth. However, God knew Jeremiah before he formed him in his womb. Where was Jeremiah before the womb? Uh, Jeremiah 1.15. All right, as usual, really good question. So I think what God's talking about there is his foreknowledge, that God knows what's going to happen before it happened, that Jeremiah didn't exist until he came together. It's not that God is made like the Mormons teach again. Here we're talking about spirit babies. Um, or I talked to a, a, a Jewish man in Jerusalem one time who I, I brought up the passage out of I think it's uh, Micah 5 2, 5, yeah, 5 2. Uh, you, uh, Bethlehem Epaphrath, out of you will come a ruler who will rule my people. His days will be from everlasting. And he said, Well, everybody exists before they're created. And I said, Where's that in the Bible? That's what the Mormons believe too. And um, so I think what he means is his foreknowledge. God knew him before he formed him in his womb. God knew me before the foundations of the world because God knows everything. He's omniscient. He knows it all. And so I think that's what he's talking about, Andre. In fact, I'm confident that that is exactly what he's talking about. All right. So thank you very much for your question. Uh, it's a good one as always. It's good to see you guys. If you're joining us, really glad to have you here. I hope that the Lord blesses you by the time we spend together looking at questions through the lens of Scripture. We have another passage here from Matt. Matt, good to see you. Uh, he has a question, who was Theopolis uh, that Luke is referring to in Luke 1.3? What I would like to do is pull up my Strong's Concordance here. And then let's just take a look at the word for Theopolis. We have to get to uh, Luke chapter 1. And then it was verse 3. Thanks for putting that in there. So let's just pull, put that up on the screen here. I want you guys to be able to see this. So here is, uh, here is the Strong's Concordance um, on Luke chapter 1. And you can see that all of these here are words that are in the Greek that are corresponding or phrases in the Greek that correspond to the words. You can see where like the word was down at the bottom that there's no word corresponding to that that's been added even uh, as they delivered them is an added word to make it make sense in English. Uh, so I'm going to go to verse uh, 3 and I'm going to go to Theopolis 
and we see that Theopolis literally means friend of God, Theopolis a Christian. So they were in their day fond of changing their name. That happened, you had Hebrew names, you had Greek names, um, you had, um, well, Jesus changed people's names. Old Testament, Abram's name was changed. Peter's name was changed from uh, Simon to Peter. Uh, even though at times he called him Simon, again, kind of like the old man and the new man. And so Theopolis, there's a couple of different ideas. Uh, Luke was a physician, and oftentimes physicians were servants. Uh, servants in a different way than antebellum slavery. That's important to remember. Um, but this may be a Christian who allowed Luke to travel with Paul, maybe because of Paul's physical needs. Um, and so he let Luke go with him, but he was Luke's owner or master. Again, not like antebellum slavery. And so he was a lover of God and therefore he loved Paul. And when Paul had an ailment, Luke was able to go with him and he had his own physician. Um, this is kind of important because Paul talks about an infirmity that was given to him in his flesh. And so to have your own doctor as, as a traveling companion, as a missionary partner, as a historian is a pretty amazing thing. And Luke became an amazing historian. So there's two ideas here. One is that Luke was, had a master. He was a, he was a servant uh, and had a master who was Theopolis, who loved God and because of that loved Paul. And so he let Luke go and travel with him to Paul to be able to take care of him and to become a historian for the things that happened. The book of Acts was written by him. The book of, not only was the book of Acts written by him, but the book of uh, Luke was written by him as well, or the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Uh, his historical detail, by the way, is absolutely phenomenal. Um, Luke makes mention of a census early on in chapter one, and Josephus makes mention of it. And those are the only two mentions. So people will say that Luke got it wrong, but it's just as likely that Josephus got it wrong, especially since Luke is very good at looking back at dates. And um, so when people bring that up, you come back to Luke. So the um, other idea is that Luke's just writing it to lovers of God, to a group of people who love God. I wanted to give you an orderly account he interviewed people, he put it in an exact order, and that he might have just wanted this to be a general term. I'm writing this to those of you who are lovers of God. And that's very well could be the case, Matt. Um, we don't know. Again, it's just some of those things where the secret things belong to God and the revealed things belong to us. Uh, we can take a look at these couple of ideas and questions that are out there. Um, and kind of wonder about them, but not really know the exact answer for sure. All right, so Matt, good to see you. As always, uh, we have a question here from Jari. Jari, good to see you. So Jari says, speaking of what happened to female followers of Jesus, why didn't any become apostles? Um, who Were they martyred for their faith? And what happened to Mary Magdalene during Paul? And um, so, Let's take these kind of one at a time. Let's start with the last one first. Um, I don't know what happened to Mary Magdalene. Uh, that's a good question. And um, I'd love to take some time to research it and to see if we know 
um, what happened to Mary. We know that she was at the cross. We know she saw the resurrection. Um, were female apostles martyred? Well, the first question would be, were any of them apostles, right? So speaking of what happened to female followers of Jesus, why didn't any become apostles? Were they martyred? So there, there are some arguments that there are certain women in the Bible who would be apostles, but I don't think that they pulled water. I don't think that they are good arguments at all. We don't see women as apostles. There are the 12 apostles. When, when the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven, it's got 12 foundations and the 12 foundations of the 12 apostles. We're missing one, which will be Judas, but I believe that Paul will take the place. So others believe it's Matthias. doesn't really matter, but I think that Paul defended his apostleship quite vigorously. Now remember the word apostle means sent out. So you could have someone who was sent out like Barnabas, who's called an apostle in the Bible, who's not one of the apostles. So there was the 12 apostles, and it seems that Paul makes reference to having to have seen Jesus in order to be an apostle. And Paul says, as one born out of time, and remember Jesus appeared to Paul on a couple of different occasions. So I don't know of any women that are, were apostles. I know there are people that make the case for it, but I don't believe it can, can stand up um, to scrutiny. And so therefore, I don't think any of them are martyred because I don't believe that any of them were apostles. All right? Um, I do believe there is, that, well, there is in the Bible a woman in Romans, I believe, that is called a, um, a deaconess. But remember that the word deacon is the word servant. So you've got to kind of get context to plug that into it. Um, but I think we're much closer to perhaps women being deacons who were servants. They, 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 they ministered to the physical needs of people. In the Bible, deacons ministered to the physical needs and elders ministered to the spiritual needs. Uh, remember when they chose the first deacons and that passage never says that they are deacons there, but in Acts it says, we don't want to leave the word of God and prayer. And so let's choose seven men full of the Holy Spirit and they'll take care of the widows, the Greek widows who were accused of being neglected. And they chose seven Greek men, I believe, uh, to be able to do that. All right, so if women held that role, they didn't hold a much. Um, why? Uh, perhaps, perhaps because God did have different roles for men and women. Uh, perhaps because of culture. So we could have some different ideas. I do believe there were women used in significant ways in the New Testament. And I think there's a lot of people that miss out on a lot of good ministry because they will not allow women to be involved in ministry. And I think that's a mistake. Personally, I don't have a problem using the word pastor. Um, in, the, in the Bible, it's elder, it's overseer, okay? Shepherd the flock among you. So we've come up with the word pastor. So if you have a, a, a female youth leader, director, why couldn't you call her youth pastor? Or a female um, children's director, why couldn't you call her a children's pastor? And I don't believe there's a problem with her overseeing men, Sunday school teachers, as long as she's under authority. And, um, and we've had women Sunday school directors um, that are under men's authority. We have it now for both of our campuses at our church. Um, our children's director is, is, is a man, but over our campuses are women who are over men. Uh, incredibly gifted women, by the way, who run things really, really well. And I think the church is hurt a lot when they don't allow women to be in certain ministry roles that aren't forbidden. All right, and we could talk more about that 
a little bit later on. But it's a good question as to whether or not there were any women apostles. I don't believe there are, although there are people who will try to make the case that there actually were. All right. So thank you for your question, Jari. I appreciate that. We have another question here from Raquia. Raquia, good to see you. Hope things are going well. Hope you had a great uh, resurrection uh, day. Hello, Pastor. Uh, is the great white judgment, second death, exclusive to those who have not repented and accepted Jesus as their Savior? Or will some good people at that time be able to get into heaven? Well, I think as we go back to the text, this is after the millennial period and the great white judgment is people are gathered together and they're resurrected to the second death. Um, I think living people that have a relationship with God would be able to make it into heaven and wouldn't go through the great white judgment throne. I think some living people on the earth at that time would be judged and maybe being resurrected into their new bodies, whatever that resurrected second death body is, which I have a lot of questions about it. I've got a lot more questions than I have about uh, that I, than I do answers require um, about that whole resurrection, the second death, um, what happens to the people in the millennium. Um, and maybe we can, you know, it's something in the future that I want to pour into and maybe get a little bit more information on. Um, but I think the answer to your question can be answered for those who have not repented and accepted Jesus as Savior, or will some good people at that time be able to get into heaven? I don't think any good people are going to be able to get into heaven because we're not getting into heaven by how good we are. The question is, will there be any people who will have a chance to receive Jesus as their savior? And I think that's what some people suggest. Um, I don't think so, but I don't know all of the passages that well to be able to come back and say, um, it's been a, a long time since I've really dove into it and didn't really dive into it with this particular thought in mind. What happens to the people on the earth who are alive at the end of the millennium when the resurrection happens? So um, that's an interesting question and I will look into it. But yeah, there's no one who's good enough to get into heaven anyway. We all have to have Jesus as our savior. And I know you know that require. Um, but are there people who will then receive Jesus and be able to make it into heaven when they come to the end of the millennium period? Certainly not by the time we're at the great white judgment throne. Thank you very much for your question. I hope you have a great day. We have a question from Psychman. Psychman45 says, I'm struggling with the uh, greatness requirement of Matthew 5, 7. Brethren, believers, so if I don't only greet Christians, I'm okay. Or whom exactly am I required to greet? Oh, greeting. Okay, sorry, greeting. Sorry. Let me read this from the beginning again, okay? And read it right. I am struggling with the greeting requirements of Matthew 5, 47. Brethren, believers, so if I don't only greet Christians, I'm okay. Or who exactly am I required to greet, if anyone? All right, well, let's take a look at the passage that you're talking about, Psych Man, and thank you for putting the um, passage in here, Matthew 5, 47. So we have the Sermon on the Mount. And a little bit laborious here to get to 47. I'm, trying, I'm working on a different way to do this. I got to wait till another computer comes in to be able to do it. I'll be able to do it quicker. 
So here we have, um, all right, so let me get this up on the screen. We'll take a look at it. All right. So, um, hate to do this to you. Um, so love your enemies. Let's go all the way back to 43 to look at this. I know we're eventually gonna get to um, down to the end here. Um, you have heard that it was said, uh, you've heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So we are, Jesus had talked about anybody can love those who love him. This is the way we're supposed to treat those who hate us. That you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than, other, more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And that's the question, by the way, that last verse that threw me for a loop when I was a new Christian. I really had trouble. I'd be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I'd come out of the whole part of the holiness movement where they taught that you had to be perfect. And I, when I read that, I remember just being absolutely lost. So let's go back and um, see what your question is, psych man. Um, I'm struggling with the greeting requirements of Matthew 547, brethren, believers. So if I don't greet Christians only, I'm okay. Or what exactly am I required to greet? So what he's saying there, I believe, is look, there are people who only greet other believers. They'll, they won't greet strangers. And maybe you could think about this, you know, as you're walking down the street and a neighbor looks up and waves at you and smiles and you just walk on by them because, hey, I'm, I'm only going to greet people I know. I'm going to take it in their day. They didn't greet Gentiles. They didn't greet people that were outside of their own little circles. And so Jesus is talking about the way we treat our enemies in this text. And then he finally gets to the greetings that we have. And he says, don't greet those who greet you only. Let's come back and take a look at it again here. I think that, that, that this will become uh, fairly clear. So um, verse 47, and if you greet your brethren only, so if you're only greeting Christians, what do you do more than others? Others that just greet other people that are the same. So he's talking about the uniqueness of Christians that we have greetings with other people. Do not even the tax collectors do so. Tax collectors greet tax collectors. Uh, so if you're gonna greet the brethren and not go out and greet other people, we should be friendly and loving. Um, I've often had a problem when I go to a Christian concert and kind of walk down and, and, and look at people and kind of nod because we're all Christians. We might not go to the same church, but we're Christians. We're at a Christian concert and people walk completely ignoring one another. And I think, where is that fellowship? Or I visited a church that does the same thing. You're kind of walking down, you know, towards the sanctuary and people aren't looking at you or greeting you. And I, and I sure hope that doesn't happen at our church. I hope that people greet people, are happy to see them, introduce themselves to people, um, because I think that's what Jesus is talking about. And I think that becomes evident here, psych man, in the context when he starts talking about um, up here, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, 
for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those only who love you, what is your reward? So we're supposed to love everybody, not just those that love us back. Not even tax collectors do the same. If you greet only the brethren only, what do you do more than others? So um, give me a follow-up question, Psych Man, if I, if I didn't get it right, okay? If I didn't get your question, let me just read through it again here. Make sure that I'm pretty confident that I got what your question was out of that passage. I'm struggling with the greeting requirement in Matthew 547, brethren, believers. So if I don't only greet Christians, I'm okay. Yes. Of whom exactly am I required to greet? If everyone, if anyone, um, everyone. So it just means that you treat strangers well. It means that you don't only greet brethren. So you got it exactly right in your first question. So, you know, are you required? So if I greet if I don't only greet Christians, I'm okay. Yeah, we are to show the love of Christ. How are we ever going to really get to know people and share the gospel if we don't greet the people around us, which I'm sure you do, psych man. Um, but I do know Christians who don't. We're just kind of grumpy. We're just kind of walking down the road. We do what other people do in our cultures. And I don't think that's how we as Christians are supposed to live. I want to be as friendly as I can to everyone around me uh, that I might be able to shine Christ to them that they might be able to get to know the Lord. So great question coming from the Sermon on the Mount. I appreciate that. And as I said, if I didn't quite get that right, and if I didn't get the nuance right, then please re-ask that again, would you? I appreciate that. I wanna thank the moderators for being here. We have a question from Lori. This is an often quest asked question. What happens to our pets when they die? Can we see them in heaven? I found the answer to this varies depending on who's asked. If the person is asked as an animal lover, they say, of course, they're going to be in heaven. If they've had pets that they love, of course, they're going to be in heaven. I found the people who love dogs and hate cats say dogs go to heaven, cats don't. And um, of course, they're saying it as a joke, but we do have horses in heaven. Um, I imagine there's no space requirements. So could God bring the pets that we love into heaven? He could. Is there a passage in the Bible that tells us he does? There's not. And so that's really important because I don't think that we can confidently say that he's going to do that. And I realize how hard that is, Lori, especially if you've just recently lost an animal. Losing an animal is absolutely brutal. I, um, I lost two dogs to uh, coyotes. And um, man, it was tough. And uh, burying them was tough. Dealing with my children with them was tough. Uh, it, was, it was hard. So I understand wanting to see them again. If you, you know, put a gun to my head and make me tell you what I think, I think animals will not be in heaven. That's what I think. Gun to my head, I don't think they're going to be in heaven. Um, but hey, I could be wrong because it's an area that the Bible is silent about. And um, there is at least horses up there. So maybe you should have a, a horse as a pet, Lori. All right, thank you for your question. I really appreciate it. I know it's a serious one and um, you probably asked it because a friend of yours or yourself have gone through some kind of a struggle with an animal here recently. All right, so thank you very much for your question. We have another question from uh, Paul. Paul joins us from Facebook. Paul says, question, in the Old and New Testament books that were there, uh, there were many miracles performed, giving people trust in the power of Christ. 
I was wondering what your opinion was on the miracles like these, this do not happen more often and obviously signs given today. Although not everyone will believe, I feel if an obvious sign or miracle did occur more often then many more people would come to God. Um, so yeah, I, um, let me just think about this for a second. Um, so it, it, we would go back to the book of Genesis and there's some miraculous things that happen there, right? There's um, the prophecy of the children in the womb. There's the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. When you get into Exodus, uh, you've got the miracles that happen with the 10 plagues. You've got the pillar of fire by day. You've got the rock that's water that follows them around. Uh, you have some supernatural stuff that happens in the book of Joshua and Judges. Um, but all of these things were laying down a path towards Christ. And I think that if you look at all of these miracles, I, th I think we can make a pretty good argument that there's a foreshadowing or a type of Christ in these miracles. Then the early church comes along and Jesus fulfills those foreshadows and types. More importantly, he fulfills the scriptures that spoke clearly about him and those foreshadows and types like God providing a ram for um, Abraham on Mount Moriah where Jesus would be crucified eventually, not the exact same spot because uh, Abraham took Isaac to the very pinnacle and down on the foot of the hill in a place called Golgotha or Calvary is where Jesus died, but it's still on Mount Moriah. Um, that, that, that foreshadows and speaks of Jesus. The New Testament was established. There were a lot of gifts during the, that first time and I don't think that the gifts have gone away, but it certainly seems to me like God's not using sign gifts today. God could do that. There's the gift of miracles. There's the gift of faith. Um, there's the gift of prophecy and there's the gift of knowledge. So many crooks and just shysters galore have, have claimed the word of knowledge. Um, I believe I have an experience with it in my life that was legitimate. But the real truth is, is that he could have found out information from me from someone else. And, you know, I, um, I had a business in Albuquerque. I was newly married. Uh, we, we went to our church, which was a, a four square church. The guy that was there had me stand up. He was having people stand up and prophesying over them. He had me stand up and he said, you have a business now and you're going to move to another city and you're going to start a church. Now I didn't do that. I didn't move to Tucson and start a church and eventually let my business go because of that prophecy it wasn't until years later when I was having difficulty in ministry that I remembered that. And that certainly seems supernatural to me. However, people didn't know I wanted to be a pastor. I was willing to go anywhere to do it. And I did have a business. So maybe he had talked to someone about me. Maybe, maybe he had. I'm, I'm skeptical on these kind of things. I, don't, I believe that there, are, there is a word of knowledge, but I don't necessarily believe they're for signs. Uh, God wants us to believe. He's not trying to show surety. Blessed are those who do not see and yet they believe. And I think I've kind of talked my way into giving you a question here now. That was almost a thinking process out loud while I was going over this. So in the Old Testament, there were a lot of miracles performing, giving people trust and power in Christ. But remember, 
The very people that believed in the miracles didn't trust God. They saw they were delivered from Egypt by the 10 plagues, but then they didn't believe God could take them into the promised land. So um, Jesus said they won't believe in the account of Lazarus and the poor man, or, or Lazarus, the poor man and the rich man. He said they will not believe unless one, uh, if one, even if one raises from the grave, so they have Moses and the prophets. So the miracles were never done to persuade someone to become a Christian. Many people didn't believe even though there were great miracles. Uh, it's the law and the prophets that's supposed to do that. And so I'm not sure today that more people would get saved. I think there's enough evidence, strong evidence in the scripture for prophecy, uh, really strong evidence in the scripture for prophecy that if someone really wanted to find out, they could believe it, but they don't want to. Think about when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead and they wanted to kill Lazarus to do away with the evidence against uh, for him or against uh, because they didn't want to believe. So I think a lot of people just do not want to believe. Um, could Would more people believe if there were more signs? Maybe, but that's not how God has chosen to do it. And God's the one who gets to do it because God's the one who gets to do miracles. And um, the signs and wonders movement back in the early 80s was a train wreck. And I just think this is not the way that God is doing things right now. If God wants to do a miracle to persuade a person to come to Christ, God can do that. But I don't see that as a directive. I see our directive being, being witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, that we are ambassadors for Christ, the Bible says, as if we are imploring people to come to Christ. The Bible never says go out and do miracles in order to bring them to God. All right, I hope that's uh, enough there, Paul. Kind of thought through that a lot, I think. And I would say I wouldn't expect from what I know that God would be doing miracles in order for people to get saved. But we are supposed to be faithfully bringing Christ to them. So thank you very much. Uh, we have a question here from, I believe it's Maria. Maria says, John 2, 1 through 11, wedding in the village of Cana. When the wine runs out at the feast, Jesus turns water into wine. Why is drinking a sin if Jesus and his disciples drank? Well, thanks, Maria, for your question. I appreciate that. Um, here, I'm going to get myself into a bit of trouble, probably. I don't think that you can make the case that drinking in the Bible is a sin. Now, I need to take some time and really unpack this. All right, and um, I don't have a lot of the passages in front of me, but let me start off by saying, first of all, there are dozens of warnings in the Bible against looking at wine when it swirls in the glass, that strong drink is a brawler and wine is a mocker, um, the, they're about getting drunk, and the Bible clearly tells us, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit instead. We, of course, have the example of Noah that got drunk and took off his clothes and his sons had to cover him up and one of them mocked him and, and all that happened there, okay? So there's a lot of warnings. But there are there is a passage that says that God made wine to marry the heart, hearts of men. And when you're, you come to the leaders in the church in the New Testament, even the elders who are the highest that you can have at that point, it says to not stay near the wine or not to 
um, not to have too much wine. So there's two different things that refer to it, but it doesn't forbid it. It forbids getting drunk. And I think in their day, people drank wine. They drank wine because water was often contaminated. And um, when I first started thinking about this was quite a while ago when a friend of mine who pastors a church said, um, I have a glass of wine, a couple of them, with my dad at dinner time, and I don't think it's a problem. He's a Calvary pastor. And I argued with him some, and he said, well, if you could show me, then in the Bible where it says that I'm not supposed to do it, then I'll, 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 I'll stop doing it. And he said, and I don't want to have a church where Jesus couldn't enter in. So then the argument goes from there. Now there's no place that forbids it. A lot of places that forbid using alcohol um, as a way to cope, right? Like people do today, that like just getting drunk or, or, you know, just, just using it and abusing it, right? And it gets a lot of people into a lot of trouble and that should be known. And it would be better for some to stay completely away from it. I have a friend of mine when um, we were in Greece together and they came and they offered liquor to the table and, and my friend said, I, I can't, I'm allergic. And the guy goes, you're allergic? He goes, yeah, I break out in handcuffs. And for him, that was honest. You know, when he starts to have any kind of, of alcohol, he becomes a brawler, he becomes obnoxious. Um, and so um, the argument then turns and John MacArthur has famously said there wasn't enough alcohol in the wine in the Bible to be able to get drunk on, that they used it to cut water, that they would use just a little bit of wine, um, a little bit of um, alcohol, maybe 2% as opposed to 13% that's in wine, four or 5% that's in beer, um, 2%. And he said quite literally, it would have been impossible to get drunk on the wine that they were drinking. But I don't think that you can say that. It doesn't make sense. Why would the Bible say then don't be drunk with wine? Paul was telling Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach, probably because there was something problem wrong with the water and there's bacteria and he needed to have it, the alcohol um, to be able to fix that. I don't know how much alcohol is sufficient for that. But I think that you can't really make that argument. That argument doesn't really hold water. So can a Christian have a drink or two? I think I would pray about it. Why has this become such a rule for us in America? Because you get over to someplace like Germany and they'll go to the pub after church and have a beer, but they'll think caffeine is a sin. So we go all the way back to the temperance movement in America that led to the banning of alcohol and then coming out of the banning of alcohol, this real division in America that was much different than in the culture that Jesus was in. And uh, so uh, I hope I unpacked that enough. Um, we also need to know that our liberty, we have liberty to be able to have a drink. But if our liberty causes someone to stumble, Paul said, I'll never eat meat again. So we know that there are people that struggle with it. And if you're one who struggles with it, I would hate my answering a question, honestly, about what the Bible says to lead you down the path where you're drinking again. And I could see that happening easily. I could see someone that, is, that has a propensity to be an alcoholic. Uh, you start to drink and you can't have one glass. You end up with, you know, you end up with five or six glasses maybe more. I heard one gal talking about it on a non-Christian program, by the way. Um, she was just saying, if I had one glass of wine, 
I had three bottles and it wasn't good. And so you've got to be careful. You've got to know what, you know, if your right hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. And so if having a glass of wine is a good thing for you, but you can't have a glass of wine without having, you know, five glasses of wine, then don't do it. You know, cut that off. Even though you might find some value in one, then cut it off. Um, it also brings up questions for Christians uh, when it comes to, you know, you had a couple of drinks and now you drive. Could you have problems that would come from that? And what's that going to say about your testimony for Christ or if it gets out of hand? So I've said for years, um, if you don't ever start drinking, then you can never get drunk. You can never get out of hand. And we know that our hearts are wicked and we can be deceived. I used to teach that Christians should not drink at all. And I've changed my position on that. And I've changed my position on that because of what the Bible says. I think it's a matter of Christian liberty, but I think we have to have great wisdom when we look at it. Um, so yeah, Jesus made, turned the wine, water into wine, and it was good wine. Because the guy said, you know, most people bring out the, the worst wine first and when people have drunk a lot, which means they're affected by it. Then they drink out the good wine. So were the people that drank it affected? We, we would hope not drunk by the wine Jesus made, but God made everything and it wouldn't be Jesus' responsibility. But if their hearts were made merry because they drank some of the wine that Jesus made, it would be wine. Some say that he made grape juice, but again, there's nothing in the Bible that would even begin or in the Greek that could be even able to begin to bring you that argument. I've had people share with me that they believe that certain people have extremely convincing arguments that alcohol should never be drank by a Christian anywhere in the world today, no matter what culture. Um, and I've listened to their studies and I find myself going, eh, I don't, I don't think I can agree with that. And I would if I could, because it is so dangerous to so many people. It becomes such a problem for certain people. And we've got to be careful and we've got to have our liberty. So let me reread your question here. And hopefully I unpacked that enough. And if you guys have more questions, we can answer them. We can talk this through. Uh, John 2, 11, Jesus, a wedding in Cana. When the wine runs out in the feast, Jesus turns water into wine. Why is drinking a sin if Jesus and his disciples drank? And I think the answer to that, Maria, is a very cautious, it's not. And that we have people that, if they get that liberty, they're gonna fall off the wagon and it's gonna be a mess. And so we have to be careful, walk in love, and we want everything that we do to be generated by love. And so we have a freedom, but we don't wanna let that freedom become an opportunity for our flesh. And we certainly don't want other people to be hurt because of our own liberties. All right, so as I said, I'm, I'm willing to take follow-up questions on that. I realize that probably stands against what most people teach, um, most pastors in America anyway, certainly not overseas, but yeah, in America, all right? Uh, maybe in Calvary Chapels, for sure. I might get trouble, I might get kicked out of Calvary Chapel. Um, Andre says, um, Mary Magdalene will be an interesting person to talk to in heaven. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, seven demons, um, I don't think she ever backslid like the chosen made her backslide. I think that was a poor choice for them to do. Um, so we have a question here from Annika. Annika, Annika, good to see you. 
Monica's question, thoughts on William Branham? Okay, well, let's just keep going on ones that can get me into trouble. All right, so there are a lot of Brahmanites in Tucson. Brahmanites uh, follow uh, something called the message. That's what they call it. We believe in the message. The message was given by William Branham. Um, William Branham was a faith healer and a proven liar. He told people, you are healed, go your way. And he collected money and those people were not healed. He said they were healed and they weren't healed. He's got some prophecies out there that people now have a new interest in William Branham because he prophesied that a woman would become president one day. And then I think some other things are supposed to happen. So people are really concerned now. If something happens to Joe Biden, Kamala would be president and that could, could fulfill a prophecy that William Branham gave. Um, when, when I study William Branham, Jim Jones had some connection with William Branham. I don't know what the depths of that connection was, but you remember that Jim Jones was the cult leader out of Guyana. They also had connections with other faith healers who were just really good. They, they were like, these faith healers were like psychics who did a really good thing or they did this thing really well that deceived people and made them think that they were healing them when in fact they weren't. Now, what if somebody was there and they called out to God and they had a real heart to God when William Branham was preaching and God healed them? I don't know of any truly um, documented cases of healings by these faith healers. I think the same thing is said about Benny Hinn here recently, that there were documented cases. And I understand that Benny Hinn has repented from some of what he's doing, but I don't know of all the things that he repented from. Uh, VW Grant was another one. Peter uh, Popoff was another one. Uh, these guys started traveling in the 50s and the 60s and they went in tents and they collected a bunch of money and uh, they, it was just, it was just awful. And there are still people that are going on today. And um, I generally try to be really careful when I'm talking about pastors and teachers, but I think that William Branham went so off the tracks. At some point he was kind of going down well, but he went so off the tracks, denied the Trinity. There were a few of the things that he did that it's pretty easy to go, this guy, at least at the end of his life, wasn't sincere. And for someone who was teaching that God doesn't want you to get sick or want you to have money to die. I think he died in a, an auto accident at 40 something years old. I'm not sure of the details on that, but certainly before his time. Um, but he was one of many around his day and there are still followers of it today. And if you want to know more about the message and William Branham, then go and look up on YouTube, William Branham and the message. Uh, just be careful where you're getting it from. And I don't mind when I'm researching someone to look at the good and the bad videos, the, the videos for and against. I like to do that when I'm looking at Mormon videos. I'm just taking some time to do a little research on what Mormons are saying. And I'll if you watch a few of the, the videos that are Mormon produced. And then I'll watch a few of them that are against it. Just because it helps me to, to be more well-rounded well in everything that I'm saying. And the last thing that I wanna do is build a straw man of a person that can be easily torn down. But, um, uh, I know people today that still follow William Branham. He taught the serpent seed, Annika, which is 
that when she ate the fruit, that was a reference of her having sex with Satan and produce Cain. That causes all kinds of theological problems. Does that mean every time somebody eats fruit from the Bible? I mean, I mean, you know, you know what I mean? As you, as you look at it and you go back and you look at the account, the account never says that. And, and um, I remember the first time I heard it, brand new pastor and a, and a guy at our church wanted to go fishing. We went down to a place here in Arizona called Bog Hole. We got out on the, the boat and we're fishing and we're catching some fish and having a great time. And he goes, so have you ever thought that maybe the fruit of the apple was Eve having sex with Adam? And I'm almost in the middle of a cat. And I just go, oh no. Because I, by then I, even, I had been exposed to some Brahminite teaching and I knew where the serpent seed came from. And the real bummer was I had to spend the rest of the day with the guy and then drive home with him while he was trying to convince me that William Branham was right. And uh, it's one of the reasons that I really dove into him and can be really confident about the things that I'm saying about him now. Okay? Um, and that whole movement, that whole movement of faith healers um, that came out of the 50s, 60s, even 40s, before, even before the 50s and 60s, um, so problematic, so incredibly problematic, and just ended up taking a lot of people's money. And um, so there's the second question that's going to get me into trouble today. All right. Uh, thank you, Annika. I appreciate it. And I do welcome all questions, by the way. Thank you very much. So we have another question here from Paul. Paul says, uh, joins us from Facebook. Paul says, Apollos, an evangelist in the book of Acts, uh, is a good example. He was trained by Priscilla and Aquila to teach and preach. The apostle Paul once visited seven prophetesses who were daughters of believers. Apostles would need a lot of training. And while eyewitness accounts by women were frequent, the husband of one wife rule preclude the sacrifice of a woman um, and the question of taking care of their young. I see that it's not a question, Paul. And I would say, great response. I think that's right on the nose. That there were prophetesses mentioned, that we had Priscilla, who took Apollos aside with her husband Aquila, and they both showed him the way more thoroughly. So Priscilla knew the gospel well, and she goes with her husband, and some say that's with as a covering, but she's being used by God to talk theology. And so I don't think that that precludes a woman from talking theology. So Paul, I appreciate your response to that. Um, I would say exactly what you say here too. Um, so yeah, um, good, good stuff. All right. So where did I, did I miss a question when I was looking at that? All right. Um, but yeah, a good summary there, I believe on what our position is as a complimentary, a complementarian, which is kind of, um, not a real radical complementarian. There are radical ones. Women, you know, can't do anything and women have to obey all men. It's just a weird, weird things that happen. So we have a, uh, question from Express Kimberly. Kimberly says, could you explain Galatians 3, 28, 29 in relation to what you said about ministry roles? Yes, I would love to look at that. So we're getting near the end of our hour together. We will have another uh, Q&A uh, this coming up Saturday. And our Q&As are connected, first of all, to the study that we're going to have tonight. So the Saturday one is connected to the one we're going to have in a couple of hours. Um, we're looking for the people at the church who are listening to the studies 
to be able to join us for the Q&A and then ask questions. So we're in Galatians 2, um, 1, uh, 11 through the end of the chapter, where Paul says, I withstood Peter to his face. And the title of the message is Peter versus Paul, uh, a face-off in Antioch. I was thinking like Ali versus Frazier, the rumble in the jungle, Ali versus Foreman, um, uh, the thriller in Manila. Um, so we're going to be talking about that tonight. And he makes a really strong case against um, legalism and the legalists. And so we will answer questions of that next week. And also I'm going to make an announcement tonight for new believers to join us for this Q&A. If they have any questions as new believers, I'd love to be able to talk to them. So um, Galatians chapter 3. So you're welcome if you would like to, we'll have a, a service here in about an hour to join us in that service and then to write down questions and ask questions next week based upon that. All right. So Galatians 28 and 29. All right. Let me see. So I'm interested here because I can't remember. I've just read Galatians 2 a couple of times, but I can't remember exactly what these verses say about roles. Ah, okay. I do know where you're going with this. All right. So let me go ahead and put it up on the screen for you. Uh, and iPhone. There we go. All right. So 20 and 29 uh, says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor is there slave or free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So this is a classic case of taking a passage that's talking about salvation and bringing it over into an area that's, that the context doesn't support. That he would say that there's no male or female would mean that there's no more roles on earth. That God doesn't have a role for a woman and a role for a husband. But obviously God does because women are mothers and men are fathers. And the fact that there's no male and female, you could say, shouldn't be the case. But there are. And you go back to the curse and we aren't freed from the curse because the ground still gives thorns and thistles. And he said, and, and I'll, I'll unpack this verse at some point if you want me to. Um, he said to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now that's just one version. There's other versions that say other things. Um, but it seems like there's a pretty strong case for that, that soft complementary in position and not the harsh one, that there are general roles. And um, in 2 Corinthians 11, it's talking about head coverings. And Paul seems to be upset at some rebellious women in uh, Corinth. And he says, if you're going to go around without a head covering, then shave your, your hair off. Now, I think this is cultural, but he's upset because they are flaunting against authority. And he says, because of the angels, which I think he's talking about the rebellion of the angels and the rebellion of these women. That is the same. He wanted them to, to have a submission to their husband, as he says in Ephesians. Um, and those roles are given to the wives. The wives are given their direction. The husbands are given their direction. Nevertheless, I, I, my encouragement to women is, especially in, in areas that don't really matter, then why not just out of obedience, kind of like tithing, just tithe because, or giving, just give because God said he'll give back to you and just take a step of faith and do it. And for a gal, it's like, look, your husband wants to do something. You want to do something else? Just go ahead and say, I'll do it because you said, start giving him that respect and, and, and maybe things will get a little better. Husbands, love your wives and die for her as Christ loves the church. 
I find that most, a lot of men get worried about their wives not submitting, but it never tells us to, to make our wives submit. It says, die for your wives. And I found that many men won't. They just won't do it. They'll, 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 she's not submitting, that's the problem. Well, die for her. That's what, that's what Jesus said to do. And it, for women, submit to your husbands and submit to him, you know? It doesn't mean that the woman doesn't have any input. It doesn't mean that she's not equal. It doesn't mean that they're not male and, and female anymore. Um, a general could be an awful person and not equal to a, to a colonel in many ways. But the colonel will stand up and salute that general because he's in a position of authority that's over him. He may be a worse person than him. They are totally equal in personhood, but in rank, they're different. And the rank is what's important. And so God does have some roles. And I think that this argument that there's no more male or female is a weak argument because we're talking about, it's obvious in verse 29. And if you are our Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So he starts it off by saying there's no Jew or Greek. When you become a Christian, male, female, any of them, then you're all Abraham's seed. That's what the passage says. Now you take this and, and put it over into the egalitarian argument and say, well, this is talking about us not having, um, not having any differences at all. That We can all play the exact same role. And I don't think that's taught in scripture. Okay. So thank you very much. Um, I appreciate your questions and I appreciate you guys. That was the last question that we're going to take today. Um, thank you, Express Kimberly. I'd love to discuss the, this further. If you guys have discussions, I don't mind things getting a little heated. I'm not trying to persuade anyone. I'm just trying to honestly look at the Bible and see what the Bible has to say. So a service in about an hour, we'll be talking about Peter and Paul and their conflict in Antioch. It's a great passage. I look forward to covering it with you. If you want to join us, then come join us. Uh, you can do it on YouTube, Facebook, or calvarytucson.com. And um, write down questions if you have them, and we'll cover them in our next Q&A. All right? So stay close to Jesus. Um, love him with everything you have. Let's all serve one another. You know, before the Bible says that women be submissive to your husbands, it says submit therefore to one another. Submit to each other. The Bible talks about those who are spiritual yield to each other. It's a good thing to yield to people. All right, so God bless you guys. Love you. We will talk to you on our, well, I'll see you either in a service or our next.